Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Hello, listeners of Unfinished Short Creek. This is John Delore, one of the producers on the show, in my backyard in Brooklyn. And the show's over. All ten episodes are out. And if you're like me, you miss it. And you want to hear more Unfinished Short Creek. Well, you're about to hear a brand new Stitcher Premium bonus episode that we have unlocked for free. It's an AMA episode, which means Ask Me Anything. During the season, we asked our listeners to send in their questions and their comments. And now you're going to hear the hosts, Ash and Sarah, sit down with our producer, Abigail Keel, to answer and respond to some of those questions and comments. And if you like what you hear in this episode and you want even more... Just go to stitcher.com slash premium and sign up with the code WITNESS for a free month of listening. Then you'll get access to the three other bonus episodes, which we'll be releasing over the next few weeks. Plus, you'll get to hear every episode of Unfinished Short Creek and other Witness Docs ad-free. So that's stitcher.com slash premium promo code WITNESS. But for now, enjoy this free bonus episode. Hello, and welcome to our very special bonus episode of Unfinished Shore Creek. Today, we're going to be answering your questions about the show. I'm Ash Sanders. And I'm Sarah Ventry. Good to be back in the proverbial studio with you, Sarah, or really our closet slash bedroom slash whatever. (laughs) Yes, it is great. And we also have a special guest with us today, our producer, Abigail Keel. Hi, Abigail. Hello. Thanks for having me on today. Um, So our listeners are going to get to hear some behind-the-scenes voices today. That's right. And I am going to help the two of you walk through some of the questions and feedback that we got from our audience about Unfinished Season 2, Short Creek. And before we get to folks' questions, we first want to give a big thank you and a shout-out to everyone who listened this season. We've had such amazing feedback from around the world. At the end of every episode, we said rate, like, review, and you came through for us. You left us reviews, sent us your questions, and most importantly, you listened. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and we got some really, really great questions from folks. I think in total we got something like 50 questions for this bonus episode. So we're not going to have time to answer all of them. Sadly. Sadly, but but some themes definitely emerged in the question. So I do think we're going to get to touch on a lot of the big ideas that folks were curious about. And we should also say that this is just our first bonus episode. So we're going to be releasing three more over the next few weeks. You can listen to this episode everywhere, but the other three will only be available in Stitcher Premium. And we're going to be able to go a little deeper on a few things in those episodes. So if your questions weren't answered here, you should definitely check those out. Sarah, do you want to maybe give us a little taste uh, about what we can expect in those episodes? 
Absolutely. So one is going to be all about the music and the score for the series, which was composed by the incredible Allison Layton Brown. We've heard so many people write us about how beautiful the music was. We're going to hear from her and from some of the other musicians. So that's one. And I think, well, John made me sing a hymn in the car the other day for it. So I might be singing a hymn. Who knows? Maybe John was just torturing me. So <laughs> you can hear all of that happening soon. Um, one episode is going to be a behind-the-scenes look at my time embedding in Short Creek. Right. We both spent a ton of time in the community making this series, but Sarah, you actually lived there for three months to report the story. Yeah. So in this one, I'm going to kind of take everyone around town a little bit to hear what it was like, and I'm going to answer some questions about living in Rulin Jeff's old house. And what's the last bonus episode going to be? The last one will be about what religion looks like in Short Creek now. So we know that it's home to the FLDS church, but remember that lots of people have left or been kicked out of the church. So I'm going to be talking about some of the other fundamentalist groups in town, and we're even going to hear tape from someone who is considered, by some, to be a prophet. I hope I speak for everybody when I say I can't wait. And all of those bonus episodes will be available on Stitcher Premium, which our listeners can get a month of free listening if they use the code WITNESS at stitcher.com slash premium. Okay, but today we are going to answer these questions from our listeners and even hear from a few of them. So let's get started. Uh, I want to kick things off with this comment from Kayla in Texas. Hi there. Um... I just finished listening to episode six of your podcast and it made me <laughs> cry and I was thinking about it and I realized that like literally every episode of your podcast has made me cry so I felt like I should share with you guys just how much this podcast means to me. So I grew up in the LDS church, like not the fundamentalist church, but you know, the official LDS church and I've since left it, you know, I, I just haven't thought about that period of my life in a long time, and listening to your podcast, like, it's really just fully taken me back into it, like, what I think really gets me is that, you know, the, the FLDS people you're interviewing, they sound like my Mormon family, like, the men you interview sound exactly like my grandpa and my uncles. I grew up in, in Texas, and when all the, um, like, arrests were happening and everything was coming down. There was so much talk about, like, how different the FLDS people are. And I remember so many people telling me that the FLDS people were so different from us and they were so much more extreme. But that's not true. Like, so much of the language that they use and even their voices and their accents, like, it sounds almost identical to everyone that I knew when I was LDS. It, um, I feel like I'm finally processing a lot. Yeah, so thank you for making this podcast. It, it means a lot. And um, I think the way you're telling these stories is so powerful. And you know, you're really showing that these people are human, right? I feel like it's so easy to just write them off as you know, these crazy Mormons. But someone who was in that was one of those people. It's just, it's so nice to hear a perspective that you don't always hear. Um, so yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, Kayla, um, for sending that in. And Ash, obviously you are also ex-mo, ex-Mormon. Obviously. <laughs> you talk about it in the show. So 
Um, have you heard a lot of reactions like like Kayla's from other ex-Mormons? Yeah, I, I definitely have. I I had a friend text me after the show came out, and she just texted the Mormon voice. And I laughed because <laughs> I, I say that in one of the episodes, there is just a Mormon voice. It's the accent, but it's also just the cadence, the way you speak. And as soon as I heard it, when I started interviewing folks in Short Creek, it's like my whole body was like, yep, this is my childhood. <laughs> and for me, after all the interviews, after all the different emotions that those interviews brought up, and they brought up every emotion possible, what I realized I wanted to do and what people said they wanted to hear was what Kayla said, a complicated story that -hmm. gave people humanity. It didn't let them off the hook. It didn't pretend that, you know, these religions don't do damage to people or that some people are very angry at them, but it showed the whole picture. And I think that's the story I've always wanted about my religion. And that's the story that all of us, I think, wanted to tell on this team. Yeah. And Sarah, what has the reaction to the show been like from our sources, from the people in Short Creek? For the most part, it's been really good. Uh, I've heard from sources who said that it was really thorough. Uh, Some people told me that it was cathartic for them to hear it. And one person told me that they heard things that they didn't know, like that Mm. they didn't understand all the ins and outs, for example, of the DOJ case, or they were still in the church when certain things were happening. And so the information they were told is different than the information that they heard in the podcast. So that was kind of, yeah, I know it was kind of cool to hear from people. Um, we did hear from some who said that they thought it was unfair and it leaned too heavily on the side of ex-believers. And we did get one really nice Apple podcast review from someone who says that they're from Short Creek and that they thought it was a, you know, a really good comprehensive look at, at their community. And so that's like very gratifying to hear. Oh, yeah. The screen name is like, Cricker 22. <laughs> yes. Loud yeah, and proud. Exactly. <laughs> so we didn't only hear from people who are connected to Short Creek or Mormonism. <laughs> we also heard from uh, lots of folks who uh, have no connection whatsoever to Mormonism or, or the FLDS church. And um, I just wanted to share this comment from another listener named Lois who wrote to us, quote, I was raised Mennonite. While the practices of my church were not as extreme as those of the FLDS, the restrictions and the fear-inducing teachings were eerily similar. I left the church decades ago, still at age 67. I find myself continuing my recovery from the trauma of my upbringing. I still find myself uncovering old fears and ways in which my spiritual identity was warped. It is still painful, and it is lonely. So thank you for what you're doing in bringing all of this to light. It's really incredible to hear from Lois, and we've heard from other people, too, who didn't grow up fundamentalist or even Mormon, who still relate to different parts of this story. I mean, Ash, you talked a little bit in the show about um, finding the parallels between your own experience of leaving the Mormon church and people who left the FLDS church. Um, I'm Jewish, which I mentioned in the show, and there were parts of this that I related to really deeply that hit me really hard. And I think if we're able to kind of peel back the specifics a little bit, it allows us to draw those parallels. And I think everyone has experienced some type of, you know, trauma or hurt or pain or difficulty with their family, um, trying to find belonging, trying to find home. And I think all of those things in this story are wrapped up in faith, but they're also kind of entangled within all of us. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's why we all were excited to to tell this story. And I, it's really gratifying, like you said, to hear um, 
to hear that people kind of got it. <laughs> um, but not everyone has seen themselves in this story. Some listeners have felt we've been too sympathetic to the FLDS and their beliefs. Um, one wrote, quote, I'm both enjoying this podcast about FLDS and getting more and more ready to eye roll over your increasingly positive bias towards these people. And others uh, wrote to us and said that they felt we were exploitative of the community. Ash, what's your reaction to comments like that? The question about being too sympathetic is really interesting, and it's one that we've spent hours and hours and hours <laughs> as a team talking about. Um, and, you know, with my background in Mormonism, there were many times where uh, Sarah and I would be sitting in on an interview and somebody would say something and it would remind me of excuses that people would make in my church and I would get upset and I would want to really hold them accountable and be like, we have to talk about this. And, you know, Sarah and other people who didn't grow up in Mormonism, I think, came with an attitude of, yes, we absolutely have to hold them accountable, but we also have to show why people believe what they believe in this religion, because that's what a lot of stories about Short Creek and other fundamentalist religions don't do. They don't show how, to a person of faith, their actions make sense to them, their beliefs make sense to them. And they may not even ask those people of faith to talk about it themselves, right? Exactly. So many stories about Shore Creek, it's very difficult to get FLDS people to talk at all to any mm -hmm. media. And so it takes a lot of work, you know. And so just as an example, for some of our FLDS sources, Sarah spent hours off the record talking to them. And it's, you know, you have to walk a very fine line to build enough trust to be able to ask hard questions and not shut the interview down. So one last thing is, the people in town are not Warren Jeffs. So hmm. everybody yeah. in town has hurt somebody or been hurt by somebody at some point, but they weren't the person in charge. So it's also tricky to figure out how to hold individual people accountable when the main person is in prison, you know? So <laughs> we, we kind of had to do that line walking. Yeah, and I think I think it's also important to remember um, it's really hard to ask someone to speak for an entire faith. And because FLDS are so hesitant to talk to the media, we were only able to have a couple of FLDS sources that were willing to be recorded and go on record for this show. So, you know, like Ash said, it is a fine line. And we really did want to understand why people believe what they believe. Yeah, and I think, too, it's something that we explore across all 10 episodes of the show. Um, and I think, you know, it does require just a little bit of patience uh, on the part of our listeners to kind of, like, stick with us. You know, thanks to everybody who stuck in there to episode 10 uh, to kind of, like, get the full picture. Definitely. <laughs> we also heard from a listener who reached out with a really helpful critique of the show. So here's a message from Christina. It's about episode 7, This Land is Our Land. And just a quick refresher, that was the episode all about the UEP Land Trust and how the ex-FLDS and FLDS were battling over who had a right to live on the land in Short Creek. So here's Christina. Hello, my name is Christina. I'm listening in Oklahoma. I'm getting in touch because as an Indigenous person and as a history teacher, I can get a little frustrated when stories are told about settlers' communities in the United States without an acknowledgement of whose land they reside on and occupy. Especially after the last couple of episodes when I heard several people say things like, oh, that's FLDS land or that's our land, 
I felt like I had to say something because while they may hold ownership of it in the legal context that exists today, it's still the homeland and territory of various tribes, specifically the Ute, Paiute, and Pueblo and Diné people in the land near Shore Creek. The ancestors of those tribes have been in that area for thousands and thousands of years. They had and still have intimate knowledge of that land and relationships with the land that is not often understood by those outside of the tribal communities. These are the descendants of the people who knew how to live in a hard land. They knew how to subsist and survive in that area. They developed trade networks and innovated and adapted to the land. So when we discuss and tell the story of any community in the United States, I think it is so important to also talk about and to the people who were dispossessed in order for that community to exist. Thank you. Bye. So Ash, do you want to address uh, Christina's comment? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you so much, Christina, for calling in and uh, reminding us all of that. Uh, That's our bad. We should have made a land acknowledgement in the show. Um, It's interesting to think about because the show's title, This Land is Our Land, is that, you know, Woody Guthrie folk song that everybody knows growing up. And Mm -hmm. every white European who sings that is lying. It's not their land, you know. (laughs) It's not our land. And I think the second big point is that, you know, beyond just white European colonization in America, there are so many Christian religions in America whose claims to truth are just inextricably connected to colonization. And that's very true of Mormonism. You know, we have this idea of the promised land, the promised land out west, that's our land that God um, reserved for us. And of course, that's not true. As you said, um, many tribes, many people were living on that land um, when Mormons got here, and many people are still living on that land. Um, and there is a history of profound violence and genocide um, with Mormons colonizing the West. You know, when Brigham Young came to Utah, uh, the Mormons there stole scarce resources from the Utes um, who were living there and said, you know, that people could commit violence against them or take their land, take their resources because God said so. And, you know, and we have to reckon with that as Mormons. And then certainly in Shore Creek, that was FLDS promised land, quote unquote, and land that God gave them. And of course, it wasn't. As Christina says, it's Diné and Ute and Paiute and Pueblo land. And we should acknowledge that. And I think, you know, that episode is all about FLDS people feeling erased by other people claiming their land, when in fact, that is what the entire culture of the FLDS did to the people whose land it was in the first place. So thank you for bringing that up. And I think in the show, we could have done a better job. And right now, I will say that we need to acknowledge this history and uh, and the way that the promised land is tricky no matter what, but downright violent towards Indigenous people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Christina, for going out of your way and taking your time to, to share that with us. We really appreciate it. I think it's time to talk uh, about the church's teachings about Black people. Uh, So we heard from a listener named Tia who asked us this question, quote, in episode one, you spoke about Mormons and Black people being cursed. I'd never heard this before, and I want to know more info about how Mormons see other races, especially Blacks. I saw this on TikTok tonight, and then she linked to a video on TikTok that I'll play here, um, and it's, uh, it's a historical video produced by the Mormon Church. I know the Mormon Church's racist past seems like ancient history, but it really wasn't that long ago. I remember as a little girl the day the priesthood ban against Black members was lifted. This film strip, it was kind of like the living scriptures of its day. It was a dramatized version of the Book of Mormon for children. See my skin? 
and white. Heavenly Father made my skin white. All righteous Lamanites now have a white skin. Isn't it wonderful? Oh, I look so pretty. So, Ash, uh, can you tell us about the LDS Church's teachings about Black people? Yeah, sorry, I'm just having a woof Mm -hmm. moment about that video. That's just awful. I feel a lot of shame about that. Um, But I will say, um, so I guess as a little precursor, in the video, um, the woman is talking about Lamanites. And that actually, um, before we talk about Black people and the church um, and racism, we need to talk about racism towards Native Americans. Uh, In Mormon scriptures about people who lived on what is now the United States and two warring kind of clans. And the evil clan was smitten with dark skin and the pure righteous clan uh, was given white skin. And so obviously this sets up this horrible foundation for people to uh, persecute and discriminate against any person of color. And there's a huge history of that with Native Americans um, and Mormonism. But obviously it sets up a lot of... uh, justifications for racism towards black people. And since Joseph Smith and Brigham Young times, um, both of those prophets talked about black people having the quote-unquote mark of Cain. That is the foundation of the Mormon religion. It's steeped in profound racism. And because of that, even at the beginning of the church, black men couldn't hold the priesthood, so they had no power in the church. And black women, no women could hold the priesthood, but black women and children couldn't go to the temple and get like the most important ordinances in the church. And this lasted until 1978. Um, Black people could not hold the priesthood in Mormonism until 1978. And then the prophet came out and said, I had a revelation. Now they can hold the priesthood. But there hasn't really ever been a proper apology. And so many Mormons, I think I read something like 60% of them said that, you know, the priesthood ban, as it's called, was ordained of God. So in Mormonism, you also have this idea that the prophet is always speaking for God. So if he says, blacks can't hold the priesthood, you don't say why. You say, okay. And then if he says, now they can, you say, okay. And so there hasn't been a proper reconciliation in Mormonism of of the racist beliefs that undergird the whole religion. Sarah, what is your understanding of how FLDS people feel about Black people today? And are Black people allowed in the FLDS church? Well, first, I should say that I only asked two FLDS sources about this, uh, Joseph Allred and Norma Richter. Joseph didn't really want to answer the question uh, and didn't want to say very much about it, but I want to play for you what Norma said. Well, we believe, just like the LDS, that um, <clears throat> that the Negro race would be uh, able to hold priesthood later. Cain was cursed. He killed his brother. Everybody knows that that reads the Bible. So, yes, he was cursed, and he was given the dark skin. And so his but. The Lord loved Cain still. We know that. He this you know, yes, we aren't we are not told to go marry into the Negro race does not mean we hate them. Does not mean we treat them poorly. It doesn't even say that there. We don't. At least I don't. I mean But you can see how someone <clears throat> Yes, I can see how they would think that curse, then that is like a racist problematic thing. Well, say. I mean, everybody calls us cursed. <laughs> Because we're polygamists, you know. So um, I believe that they have to wait. I don't believe they're bad, though. Their father, their forefather was cursed. And they are reaping the rewards of that in the color of their skin and their bloodline. Okay, so so no, I wouldn't marry. And I wouldn't suggest that we intermarry, you know, in, in the races. Although I absolutely adore 
many Negroes. I think they are wonderful. I have had some absolutely precious friends that have dark skin. And uh, I don't know, I, because I'm not in the, the world of what words are taboo and stuff, but my Negro or black friends or whatever, you know, African-American, I don't know what you call them, but I, it doesn't really matter to me because I've been called a lot of names too, but they're good people. There are a lot of good, wonderful people. So, Do you believe a black <clears throat> person can hold the priesthood now? I guess not, right? Because they can't convert into the faith. Not at this point that I know of. But I believe it will be. It will come. So that tape was also really hard to hear. It was really uncomfortable to be having that conversation with Norma. You can hear that she uses a lot of um, antiquated and problematic language. Obviously, Norma is just one person, but part of what she was responding to when I asked her this uh, is the fact that the Southern Poverty Law Center has classified the FLDS as a hate group for having racist, sexist, and homophobic teachings, and they quoted parts of the FLDS priesthood history class, for example, Warren Jeff's sermons, to explain why they've, they've gotten this designation. So it is really difficult to hear what Norma's saying. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about how this community has lived isolated for a long time. It has been very homogenous for a long time. And a lot of the, the teachings and customs and part of the culture for FLDS are rooted in a very specific time period. Um, so these teachings come from Mormon teachings, but there was never this revelation that came later in the Mormon church that said, oh, actually, this isn't the case anymore. If you can imagine kind of operating off of this doctrine that has never been changed, I think that is where the FLDS are coming from. And Sarah, I mean, you lived in Short Creek for, you know, a few months. When when you were living there, do you feel like even among people who may not be in the church anymore, there are still some racist views? I mean, yeah, if you look at Facebook groups from people who live in town um, or people's individual Facebook pages, you can see people posting things that are racist. And a couple years ago, I was driving through town and saw a Confederate flag in someone's window right in their house facing the main road. So it is a community that still has a lot of work to do in relation to racism and understanding the relationship between race and power. And obviously, as a nation, and especially as white folks, we all have work to do in that respect. But I do think that because this community lived in an isolated way with some foundational teachings that are racist and problematic, then it is different even than other places in America that are still trying to do this reckoning. I want to switch gears for a little bit and talk about a few things that a lot of listeners asked us about. So uh, it's kind of like the economics and families of Short Creek. So let's start here with Melissa's question. She writes, in the second episode, one of the men mentions that he had 49 siblings. How does one father financially support so many children? So I know that, uh, you know, there's a lot <laughs> we don't know about the specific finances of every family in Short Creek, but what do we know in terms of how f polygamous families support themselves? 
Well, one thing I think is important to start with is that they have a completely different economic system than most of our listeners are used to. Uh, They basically lived a religious form of communalism for a long time. So as we said in some of our episodes, you know, they they would uh, work land in common. They would grow food in common. They would help each other build houses. Basically, everything that they did was dedicated to the church, and the church was sort of responsible for redistributing Um, a lot of the basics of life to people based on their need. And so I think that helped a lot of people in town in terms of just like covering basic food when they had really large families. That's the basic kind of economic approach in Short Creek that allowed people to maybe have bigger families than they could if they lived in, um, you know, the rest of America. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes... If you've got 49 kids in one family, like, they're not all going to be under the age of 10. And and as kids grow up, they may work and, you know, contribute back to the families. Or start their own families, leave the house, that kind of thing. Yeah, right. And, like, crickers are very, very proud, you know, well, that's kind of what it means to be a cricker uh, for a lot of people we talk to is hard workers up at dawn. You know, we talk to so many people who are like, I had a job doing this as like, you know, a paper boy or whatever, as a little kid. and Working at the dairy before school. (laughs) Exactly, working at the dairy. And so it's just a community of extremely hardworking people where people are expected to pull their weight. And also remember, you know, if everything was owned by the church and there was this communal form of living that Ash explained, people also didn't have the same expenses that maybe you and I have. So they may not have been paying rent or a mortgage or something that would take up normally a pretty big part of your income. So your expenses are also lower than if you're living, say, in a big city. Yes, that's a great point. And and there is also a high rate of poverty in this area. Um, and We got some questions from listeners uh, kind of about that, like this question from John. He writes, In episode three, you mentioned that many people in St. George think that members of Short Creek are able to support their large families via social welfare assistance provided by government. Is that accusation largely true or false? So first of all, let's just acknowledge that there is a stereotype about FLDS and government assistance. Um, The former attorney general of Utah, Mark Shirtliff, said about the FLDS, quote, their religious belief is that they'll bleed the beast, meaning the government. They hate the government and they'll bleed it for everything they can through welfare, tax evasion, and fraud. And one of our sources, Shirley, refers to this in episode three when she says that people in town would ask her if she was on government assistance, like uh, listener John pointed out. So Sarah, can you both talk a little bit about what we know in terms of this listener question. So in 2006, the then Attorney General of Utah, Mark Shirtliff, said that 65% of the people were using public assistance and compared that to only 6% of the population broadly. So it is true that people in Short Creek have used and continue to use public assistance. In 2017, Warren Jeff's brother, Lyle Jeffs, who was the bishop of the community and who many people say was running things under the direction of Warren Jeffs while Warren was in prison, he was convicted of food stamp fraud. And this happened because he was requiring people to turn over their benefits in a number of different forms over to the church so that he and the church could benefit monetarily from SNAP benefits that were given to people who qualified for SNAP. So there definitely has been abuse of public assistance, at least from certain leadership of the church. The people in town 
may or may not have benefited from that. And we know for a fact that a lot of people didn't benefit from it, that while this was happening, there were people whose families did not have enough food to eat that were malnourished. So it is a complicated question because, yes, people use public assistance just as people use public assistance in monogamous families and in other communities in the region. And at the same time, there was also this uh, abuse of public assistance that was orchestrated by church leadership. But that doesn't mean that the people in the community actually benefited from that, or even that they were consciously saying that they wanted to be a part of that system. It was a system that they were a part of because they were a part of the church and the community. One thing that people do argue is that um, because of polygamy, um, a man only has one legal wife, so all of his additional wives are viewed as single mothers and therefore have access to public assistance programs. So a lot of people argue that that was going on. But again, that was reflective of actually being in that low-income bracket that anybody, that would make anybody qualify for SNAP or whatever. And I do think it's important to say that there are times when people— drive through the community and see certain things, like, for example, unfinished homes. And, like, I had grown up learning that the reason people in Short Creek didn't finish their houses was because in Arizona, you don't have to pay property taxes if your house is unfinished. And so they left their houses unfinished on purpose so they could avoid paying property taxes. Then I grew up and found out that you do have to pay property taxes even if the house is unfinished. And that the reason the houses were unfinished was because people couldn't afford to finish building them all at once. There's these ideas that just get, like, inflated that aren't you know, entirely accurate. So another question we got a lot from listeners is summed up well by Sarah. She writes, quote, when a community has men with multiple wives, then there must also be men who have no wives. How does that work? Okay, so Ash, how does that work? Is there an excess of unmarried men in Short Creek? So, yeah, we did talk to some of our sources who said that they were not married, uh, they were not given wives um, because the prophet didn't like them or because he wanted to give other more, like, elite men in the community wives. And definitely with polygamy, there's going to be a problem with the math there, right? Something that comes up a lot when we talk about this is people ask us about the quote-unquote lost boys. And these are boys that people say were kicked out of the church under Warren Jeffs because there was an excess of men and there weren't, an, you know, and so they, were, they weren't good for anything. And there have been a lot of young men who were kicked out of the church, especially under Warren Jeffs. You know, Brent Jeffs, who's Warren Jeffs' nephew, who actually brought charges against Warren, wrote a memoir called Lost Boy. And there are other shows. There's a documentary called Sons of Perdition that follows around young men who identify as lost boys. And so that's kind of what this listener is talking about or maybe referring to is what happens to all these boys who don't get wives. And it's important to say, too, that the term Lost Boys was, to my understanding anyway, created by outsiders, created by people not from the community, and it's most often repeated by people from outside of the community. So we do have a couple of sources who said that they really have a problem with that term. Um, they, you know, people who said, my nephew is, you know, one of those so-called Lost Boys, and he really can't stand when people use that term. So the term itself is a little bit problematic, but I think, like Ash said, there's kind of this bigger question of 
um, what happened to young boys who were kicked out. And we should also mention it wasn't just young boys who were being kicked out. I mean, you've heard from people in the series that women were also kicked out of the church. And so it's just important to remember that everybody, regardless of gender, was impacted by church policies in some way. All right. So our next question comes to us from Jenny. And she writes, quote, Thanks for all your work on this podcast. I'm listening to episode five now, and I'm wondering if we'll hear from teenagers and young adults who have grown up only in a period when Warren Jeffs has been in jail. And there were actually a few questions about young people in Short Creek today. And so to answer this, we thought it would be fun to hear from an actual young person in Short Creek, a youth. Yes. (laughs) So we are going to call up Uh, our local Short Creek production assistant. Uh, She grew up in Short Creek. She worked on the show with us. Her name is Araya Hammond. Uh, So let's give her a ring. Hey. Hey, Araya. How's it going? Hey, guys. It's going great. Good to hear from you. Okay, Araya, so um, one of the reasons we wanted to call you is because we got a question from someone who wanted to know what it was like for teenagers and people who grew up in Short Creek, but who grew up in a period when Warren Jeffs was in jail. And I know you and I have talked about this before, so we wanted to kind of hear from you and let you kind of explain to people what it was like for you growing up in Short Creek. So maybe if you want to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, how old you are, how long you've lived in Short Creek. Yeah, I'm so glad somebody asked because it's very different for the youth than it is for most of the adults that I think you guys talk to. Uh, So my name's Araya Hammond. I'm 18. Uh, I grew up in Short Creek on and off, but I've been back for about seven years now. And tell us a little bit about your family. So you have one sister. Yeah. So I have one full sister from my mom and my dad. Uh, My mom left the FLDS in the 80s. And she had, she came back to the second ward and had six children, my older siblings. Um, My dad also grew up in the second ward after they had both left and they came together. And we should explain. So the second ward is that in the 80s, there was kind of a a split in the church that it was not called the FLDS church at the time. But the fundamentalist church that's in Short Creek had a split and some of the families left and moved just a few miles down the road (laughs) uh, and created another community called Centennial Park, which is sometimes called the second ward by people in Short Creek. So your parents were both affiliated with that church. Yeah. So before that, your mom was actually part of the the church that's now called the FLDS Church. Yeah. So I think one of the things that people really want to know is what is it like to be a person who grows up in a town with so much complicated history, but you didn't really experience some of the things that we heard about from people in the show. Like you weren't a part of the church ever and you didn't maybe experience things under Warren Jeffs in the same way, but you still grew up in a place where so many other people had. So can you talk a little bit about what that's like? Yeah. So there's a lot of things that were really normalized. Um, Some of those things I didn't realized weren't normal for a while. And some things really slapped me in the face when I came back in the seventh grade. Um, Some good things, mostly bad though, like uh, poverty, substance abuse, abusive relationships, uh, just a myriad of things that I didn't fully understand. Um, And once I, once I settled in, I did start to think it was somewhat normal. You know, people living in unfinished houses, people 
having experienced abuse of all kinds and kind of laughing it off, uh, making really crude jokes that I will not repeat, <laughs> uh, jokes about Uncle Warren and Uncle Lyle. Drugs are a big problem here, and that was that was hard for me. And what about, I mean, that's a lot to be processing. And I know even on top of all of those other things that you mentioned, um, we've talked about this a lot, that you also really have warm feelings about Short Creek, like that you're proud of where you're from, even though it has a really complicated history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I when I moved back, like I said, it was a really hard adjustment for me because um, it had been you know, before we had moved out, it was still under Warren's rule and it was a lot more hostile. Um, and there were a lot more FLDS members in town. And I wasn't really aware of the change that had happened. So I was really angry that we had come back. And it was, of course, still in the process of a lot of change. It's changed so much since I have moved back. So it took me a couple years to really wrap my head around some things. And of course, I was busy being a teenager too. But I quickly realized that people who have de dealt with those things, you know, people who have gone through really hard things oftentimes will come out stronger or with a better understanding of, you know, things that most people never have to deal with. It was just such an amazing experience to see that kind of resilience with so many people in so many different ways. Not to mention, it's just a gorgeous place all around and it's, you know, you're not going to find anywhere like it. Are you glad that you grew up in Short Creek? Oh yeah, I I wouldn't change it for a, a bajillion dollars. Do you do you plan on staying there? You're you know you're 18 now. You graduated high school. Do you think you'll stick around? Um, no, I'll probably leave for a few years, but I'm sure that I'll come back eventually. You know, I I'll probably raise a family here. I'll probably grow old here. Sounds really beautiful. I do want to ask because, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how things have changed in the community. There's now businesses that weren't there before. There's a bar. There's a couple of restaurants. Um, tell us what you do for fun in town. What do the youths get up to? Um, ATVs are huge. But a lot of kids, you know, are, are just getting out in nature, hiking all the time because there's, you know, hundreds of different little hikes and cool uh, little cliffs and ledges and caves to explore. And of course, the regular old uh, cricker stuff, you know, spending time with family and sewing and babysitting. <laughs> <laughs> Is there one thing that you want people to know about the community that they might not know or that they might not have learned from listening to the show? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's so hard to not sensationalize Colorado City and Short Creek. I mean, of course it is. And it is kind of sensational, but that doesn't mean that it's not also completely normal. You know, people here are trying really, really hard to create change. You know, people who are out there starting farmer's markets and, you know, beautifying their homes and volunteering. And I, you guys have met plenty of them. So I think it's really important to note that even though, you know, we haven't completely come out of that shell yet, we haven't completely healed. It's absolutely in the process. And today the town looks more, you know, normal than ever. Not that it ever will be completely, but. <laughs> um, Araya, thank you so much. It is always good to talk with you. Thank you for all your help on the show. And thanks for making time today. Yeah, of course. I'm glad to hear from you guys. And I'm going to love to hear myself on the show. Not going to lie. Love that clout. <laughs> Have a great day, guys. Thanks, Araya. See ya. 
So this is our last listener question. It's from Ashley, which is funny. We had a, a Sarah question earlier, but now we have an Ashley. <laughs> no, okay. So Ashley writes, I grew up near the Arizona-Utah border, and we frequently stopped at the market in Colorado City for cheese as a kid. Back then, I didn't understand why, but I always wanted to help. Is there anything we can do to help those who want out but who don't have resources or just need help assimilating after leaving? So what can listeners do to help whether they're in the area or not? So one thing that I always tell people when they ask this question is to remember that it's helpful not to think of it as, you know, an escape narrative. Not everybody who's in the FLDS church wants to leave, and not everybody who's in Short Creek wants to leave. And as you heard, a lot of people leave and then they come back. I would say the first thing is just remember that everybody is approaching this a little bit differently. And, you know, of course, to to try to approach these situations with a lot of sensitivity. I also think it's really important for people, for us to take our cues from locals, to take our cues from people who are from the community or who are living within the community. Grassroots organizations and efforts are always the best. So um, two of our, the people that you heard from in the show, Shirley Draper and Donia Jessup, both work with an organization called Cherish Families. Uh, it's staffed by people from fundamentalist backgrounds, and they work with people who are both in and out of the church. That is the main organization that I refer people to because it includes people from within the community. You can also support uh, the Crickers Foundation, which is a local group. So the Crickers Foundation has a lot of different programs. They have a girlfriends club where women can support women, a brave youth club, a mentoring program, and a program to support women-owned businesses. And uh, that was started by someone in the community. And if you're interested in that, you can go to Crickers, C-R-E-E-K-E-R-S, Utah.com. The other thing is a lot broader, but I would say that one of the reasons that we made the show is so that people uh, didn't just see what was wrong with Shore Creek, but they could reflect on how Shore Creek shows us what's wrong with our society at large. So this is a much bigger task, but I think, you know, if you've seen sexism in the show or racism or whatever, look at that in your own community and if you're LDS in your own church and try to figure out how to solve those problems in society at large so that when people, if they want to leave and they do leave, they find a, like a better, safer world outside as well. All right. Unfortunately, that's all the listener questions we have time for today. But thank you to everyone who wrote in. And don't forget to subscribe to Stitcher Premium so that you can hear our other bonus episodes, which are coming out very soon. Remember, there's going to be bonus content about Unfinished Short Creek's original music, my time embedding in the community, and the other religions and faith traditions in town. Go to stitcher.com slash premium now and use the code WITNESS to get a free month of listening. And Abigail, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you both. It's been really fun. And I learned yeah. a lot. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and also special thanks to our executive producers, the Reverend John Delore and Amy Westervelt. Unfinished Shore Creek is a production of Critical Frequency and Witness Docs from Stitcher. See you next time. Bye. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. 
Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.